Welcome back to Extra Credit, a TransUnion card and banking podcast. This month, we're coming back at you with an update on what's going on in the credit card market and a special guest who can provide her perspective on that. As we look at credit card programs in the future of lending, we've asked Susan Ehrlich to come on and share her perspective on credit card lending programs and the future of lending in general. We've also asked Susan for her perspective on leading change and being an innovator in financial services. Over the course of her impressive career, Susan has worked in just about every space in and around financial services, incumbent banks, neobanks, large credit card lenders, in taxes, lending, and online commerce. And throughout that time, she's been an admired executive and change agent while the industry has gone through transformations and multiple cycles, consistently shaping how the industry responds and leading with technology and innovation. Now, Craig, before we bring Susan on, I'm hoping that you can just provide a, a quick update on where the market's at. But before we get to that, just a reminder that uh, Craig and I really appreciate feedback from folks listening to this. So please, if you have questions or thoughts on what you'd like to hear on this podcast or just general reactions, we are always here for that feedback and email us at extracredit at transunion.com. Craig? Yeah, thanks, Josh. I'll tell you what, such a fantastic guest on. I'm really excited, but it does put some pressure on us, Josh. It we better not blow it. it Let's does. revisit that and see how we performed at the end of the podcast. So Josh, because I know Susan is going to offer so many fantastic insights, I'm going to keep the TransUnion perspective pretty brief and pretty to the point. So taking a look, and we're going to look at how we ended uh, the year in the card market. And what we've seen is card issuers continue their acquisition efforts, even as consumer balances and delinquency began to increase. Lenders have continued their focus on acquisitions through pre-approved offer with more than a third of consumers reporting interest in seeking credit. If we go back and look at how originations ended, this is a Q3 view, Q4 is uh, slightly lagged due to reporting delays. We set an all time high with 20 million originations in Q3, which is a significant above 50% year over year increase. Now that's off of a odd comparable in um, 2020, keep that in mind. Total bank card balances increased 6% year over year in Q4 of 2021 to totaling 785 billion. However, total balances still remain below 2019 highs. Bank card consumer delinquencies remain well below normal, although continued month over month increases could be a sign of reversing of those trends. So that's it in a nutshell. I hope that sets the stage gives us a foundation to uh, really interpret Susan's comments and insights going forward. Gregory, you still uh, remember when we put our predictions together, what was it you said we were going to end the year below 2% in terms of the, the severe delinquency rate? You still feeling good about that prediction? Still feeling good. And I think I, I beat one of the predictions on originations increases, but I'd have to go back and listen. So uh, feeling pretty good. Still good. a lot of the year left to go, though. There is. Susan, one of the things that Sean had mentioned to me is that you're an avid golfer and you're recently back from a golf trip to Palm Springs. So 
we know that a lot of the folks on the podcast or folks that listen to the podcast listen to golf. Some do, some don't. Now, you apparently have lived all over the country and been to many of the better and lesser known course courses. Would love to get your perspective on a couple of things. One, what is your favorite all-around golf course? Two, what's the most challenging course you've played? And three, in your view, the course everyone should see at least once in person. <laughs> Excellent. Um, thank you for that question. Yeah, you know, working in payments, I have to say, it gave it gave me an awesome opportunity to participate in golf events because you have a lot of uh, payment network sponsorship of things like PGA tournaments and events. Um, and so, you know, this past weekend was the Arnold Palmer Invitational presented by MasterCard. And I had the great good fortune to play in the Pro-Am at that tournament three times, nice. uh, including with Ian Poulter and with Rory McIlroy. So I would have to say my uh, dream round of golf had to be inside the ropes uh, with Rory McIlroy, who was delightful playing that tournament for the first time um, and was just a, a terrific uh, teammate in that experience. Um, that was really great. But I would say my favorite round of golf and the course I think everybody has to visit in their life is Pebble Beach. There's just no doubt. It is spectacularly beautiful. Um, and with friends, I do go to the Pro-Am every year and walk the course and uh, I can still find places to take pictures and, and just uh, views that are just awe-inspiring on that course, uh, which is fantastic. Um, in terms of most challenging round of golf and round of golf that I would love to forget, but I can't and it tortures <laughs> me in my nightmares, uh, Whistling Straits in Kohler, Wisconsin. Um, I think they've said they haven't even been able to count the number of sand traps that exist on that course. Um, I wish I had counted the number of sand traps that I found myself in because that probably could have given them a reasonably good estimate of the number of traps because I think I found every area of sand on that course in the 18 holes. It was complete disaster. Um, really, really difficult. So I'm always impressed when you see tournaments played on that course um, and players just scoring incredibly and finding fairways because I don't know how they did it. I've heard that's quite a course. That was great perspective and I'm going to definitely have to check out uh, Whistling Straits. Now let's move into, I call it the uh, professional part of the uh, conversation. Would love to get your perspective on how you view current trends uh, in the credit card and lending space. We know you've spent a good amount of time focused on major card portfolios and businesses. If you were to find yourself at the helm of a large credit card business tomorrow, what would you be excited about and what would give you pause? I, you know, I started my career at Citibank. And I worked there for over six years in their card division. Um, I left City and I joined Providian, uh, which was a turnaround of a, of a subprime, near prime card player. It was competing with the Capital Ones and the HSBC households at the time. 
And then I left there and I spent five years at the helm of Sears Financial Services where you know, we had the Sears card program, uh, we were making credit available at point of sale and that was all back before buy now, pay later uh, when you had retail credit cards and 0% financing. Um, so if I um, found myself back there today, I think I would be most excited by the opportunities that exist today to expand access to credit. Um, you know, I think a big part of the work that we were doing at Sears and we, we literally called the approach, um, say yes to more customers, saying yes to more customers. And, and I think that carried over um, from the work that we had been doing at Providian, which was really trying to expand access and enfranchise more people with responsible credit products, um, particularly those who had like thin credit files or no credit files where traditional credit modeling and scoring wasn't as effective. So I think you know, the opportunities, there's just more opportunities today. Pedal has taken an innovative approach to cash flow based underwriting and they now have um, Prism data products. So they're now selling that data and scoring approach and making it available to other lenders. Um, I'm also really intrigued with AI solutions like Upstart and Pagaya and, and Zest AI. Um, they're you know, all expanding access across the credit spectrum. I've, I'm hearing from colleagues who are working with some of these partners that um, they're underwriting they've been able to expand access by sometimes up to 30% over what they were doing before. And I just think that's a, a game changer in terms of expanding access to credit. So I think that's really exciting. Um, in terms of what would give me pause, you know, I, I think all traditional um, financial institutions and credit card lenders are just challenged by legacy technology. Um, and certainly at this moment in time where we are, there's the prospect of a rising rate environment. The card product and the user experience I really love is my Apple card. Um, and I think Deserve and Pedal Card are also really changing the game on what credit card user experience is. And I think you know, keeping up really requires a rethink of the technology stack. You know, all of banking is moving to cloud-based and enterprise SaaS. And I think credit card businesses need better options to be able to compete with what fintechs are making available to the next generation of clients. So I think, I think that would be the biggest um, hurdle I, I see facing the traditional credit card businesses. Susan, you, you mentioned your background working for some larger credit card lenders and banks and a couple of the, the boards that you're on. And I believe you're on a couple of other fintech boards. And then also uh, on the board of, of one of the largest credit unions in the country as well. So I think that gives you a really interesting vantage point on both traditional financial institutions as well as the fintechs. And curious, where do you see the fintechs out competing banks and credit unions? And where do you think credit unions or smaller banks can still differentiate? Yeah, I um, my transition into more tech of fintech uh, occurred probably about a decade ago where I, I worked for a couple of years at Amazon 
in their financial services area, responsible for all the credit programs, um, the card programs that Amazon offered uh, globally. And then I spent time at Lending Club um, and I worked at Simple. And then I spent the last three years of my operating work career uh, as the CEO at Earnest, which is a student lender, student loan refi company. And since then, I've really focused my time on board and advisory work. So yeah, it gives me a really interesting perspective on where traditional businesses are in their digital transformation and where fintechs are applying new technologies and frankly, creating whole new business categories um, that hadn't existed before. I think fintechs are really outcompeting banks and credit unions on their pace of innovation and just their, their, the speed of change that they enable. Um, and I'm just really impressed with the obsession that they all have for improving user experience, improving product experience, really focusing on um, user engagement with the tools that they're building. I think traditional banks and credit unions are, are really only barely keeping up with what financial technology companies are doing in that product experience. Um, and that's true not only for the end user, I think, I think fintechs really outcompete on digitizing workflow as well and changing just the way work is done. I, you know, in leading at Earnest, was always very impressed with the simplifying and the streamlining of the work that we were doing internally to automate tasks where traditional banks would just throw humans at it. Um, mm -hmm. You put people on the problem because it was, you know, faster um, than moving a project through a, a technology prioritization process. And so the result is like the customer support tooling is way better. It's more efficient. It's easier. It's simpler. It's not 15 systems, you know, kludged together in a user interface. And that has a real impact on team morale and retention. It's easier for them to serve clients. Um, the work is intuitive and it just encourages people um, to do their best work and to feel good about it. So I think those are areas where I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to have to compete against the fintechs. Um, but in places where I think, you know, credit unions like BECU and others, small banks have an opportunity, I think is really um, leveraging that community mindset and the community presence that they have to, to really work on improving financial outcomes and financial health for their clients and, and members. Um, I think that mission focus that credit unions and community banks share is a powerful motivating force for their employees. And I think that really shows up in the difference in the, in the service experience that members and clients of community banks receive. And I, I think doubling down on that can continue to be a meaningful differentiator um, but I don't think anything sort of uh, removes the requirement to just need to continually and significantly invest in digital transformation, because I think that's going to be both for employees as well as that end user experience 
um, the nature of the way banking and, and lending is done is just radically changed. That's really, that's really helpful. And I'm curious, Susan, this might be a bit of an unfair question, but listening to the first part of your answer there, if I'm a, the CEO of a $3 billion credit union or, or leading a, a hundred branch regional bank, hearing everything that you laid out in terms of the, the competitive advantage fintechs have, where do you start or where do you put your attention first? So, you know, if I were, were, you know, in one of those organizations, I'd be looking for the growth opportunities where a collaboration with a financial technology partner would not only serve my business by helping me generate some, some revenue um, or put some loans on my balance sheet that I wouldn't have access to otherwise, but also just teach me the very different way to work that these organizations operate under because that, that's going to become the expectation that employees have um, for what working in financial services is. And I think you know, traditional banks and financial institutions are going to have to adopt very different methods of working than the ones that, they, that have made them successful to date. And you know, I, for me, I found it easier to just understand and be able to emulate um, from having the, the specific experience than to try to figure out what it means and, and reinvent it without that exposure. And Susan, when you and I met, it was, gosh, 10 or 12 years ago or so, and you were in the headlines at the time for kind of reaching back into the filing cabinet and giving <laughs> new life to, to lay away. Uh, and I'm curious, as you think about BNPL, and which in many ways is you get the goods up front, but not dissimilar from layaway in other ways. How do you think about credit card programs and point of sale in general and how that will change over the next three or five years, given what we're seeing now? Yeah, you know, um, the resurgence of layaway, that was the wake of the last financial crisis. So that was like 2008, 2010. Um, and that really came as a reaction to the fact that credit card companies had pulled back on granting credit. And that was especially true for, for retail, private label, and point of sale. So, you know, layaway contracts uh, were based on this biweekly payment. And that actually gave customers more control over their spending. That's one of the things that the research told us they valued because we would have clients using layaway who had credit available on their Sears cards. And they still had multiple layaway contracts operating at you know, Sears and, and Kmart stores at the time. So that, that control over their usage, um, that ability to kind of budget around the biweekly payment, I think was really what was powerful. And you fast forward today and the rise of buy now, pay later, um, you know, and you, I think you saw that initially mostly amongst digital, you know, e-commerce provider, providers, right, that did not have a traditional storefront. And to, when I reflect on like where and how did that opportunity evolve, I, I really think it, it kind of represents a failure of traditional credit providers to meet the needs of those small and rapidly growing e-commerce merchants. Um, there were no co-brand credit or private label programs available 
And, you know, these companies were too small to be on the radar of the, you know, the synchronies and the cities and the cap ones who were the traditional co-brand and, and private label credit providers. So I think BNPL just stepped in and filled the gap. And I think the rapid, you know, the migration to e-commerce and digital channels that happened in COVID only accelerated the transformation and the, you know, the, the growth of BNPL. So, you know, how do I think uh, credit and point of sale lending should evolve? Um, you know, I, I think there will always be opportunity to remove friction and increase the, the speed of credit origination at point of sale. Um, you know, I, I've worked in the space long enough that I always um, hoped for, envisioned a day where retailers would just use their loyalty program information and pre-approve customers for credit in real time in the purchase flow, you know, and earlier in the purchase flow. So people knew they had a credit line available and it would enable them to make different better and potentially more um, purchase sales, you know, and I think the technology exists to do that. Um, you know, I, it was a, a, it was an initiative that I was working on at Amazon. Why shouldn't credit be instantly available as you're moving through the purchase path uh, on that platform? And it would be true of any e-commerce platform, um, you know, but I also see opportunities and I, I think you know, the companies like Deserve that are built on cloud-based, uh, API-enabled, uh, you know, SaaS platform services, I think they will help create um, efficient, efficiently executed card programs and be able to help move some of that co-brand and private label credit granting further into the e-commerce uh, marketplace. And so, you know, companies that are just too small to be actively courted by the major players today will have options. And I think that's going to be a huge opportunity because that's the future of, of retail, um, you know, e-commerce, retail growth. Well, let me uh, jump in with a quick question there. There's a lot of commentary and analysis suggesting that the current business model for buy now, pay later, in terms of the merchant discount, and in some cases, or in many cases, not charging interest will have to change as competition ramps up. Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true because where buy now, pay later had its initial success was in categories where merchants didn't have options or alternatives. You know, in, in retail credit programs, you know, buy now, pay later is really 0% financing without the penalty if you don't pay it off um, on the end. And so you know, those, those programs have had merchant discounts that, that retailers pay to have access to 0% financing. And the economics are way cheaper um, than what I understand the merchant discounts are for buy now, pay later. So I think as those merchants, um, you know, mature in their use of buy now, pay later, one, you want repeat transactions. So you want that client to be able to come back and have his seamless and easy experience and to know that they can purchase on credit in the future. So that's going to lend itself to the notion of a, of an account or a credit line. Um, even if it is just a series of, of installment loans that the customer is using with you, like, like the layaway contract example I shared. Um, 
And I think it's going to naturally lead by now pay later providers into looking at offerings that look more like traditional co-brand and private label credit um, in order to offset the lost economics from the merchant discounts um, getting competed away. Great perspective, thank you. When Josh and I talk with folks, we run into people who are questioning how to drive a change agenda or may even be struggling with it. What kind of advice do you have for those folks? My um, first and biggest piece of advice would be to familiarize yourself with uh, everything John Cotter of the Harvard Business School has written on the topic, because I think uh, his approach uh, as a process for leading change and internalizing that in an organization, and it's just, it, it's amazing work. Um, I think the best article that I have found that I refer to frequently, it's called Leading Change, Why Transformational Efforts Fail. And it has all the critical ingredients in it that, you know, as a leader, you have to attend to, to create and sustain transformational change, you know, and it's, it, it's not, you know, like with all of these things, it's not rocket science, but it is helpful to have it kind of all organized and communicated in one place to be able to refer to. So, you know, the, the steps in that process are things like you need a sense of urgency, right? And he talks about, you know, if you have a crisis, sometimes you have to manufacture a crisis to get people to truly understand that change is required. Um, building the coalition of change agents within the organization who have that passion and can help drive that agenda around the organization. Having the strategic vision of what the future state looks like so that people will let go of today and, and reach for that vision you're creating for the future. Um, the power of communicating, communicating, communicating in making sure that at every opportunity, even though you feel like you're repeating yourself, you do have to keep repeating yourself for people to, to hear and, and understand and see your commitment to what the, the changes you're trying to create. Generating the series of short-term wins that help build momentum behind a change agenda. It can't just be, you know, we'll have a new tech stack five years in the future. People have to see progress and improvement along the way. Um, there's always the risk that you, you, you declare victory too soon and you, know, you, you consider the task complete, um, mission accomplished, if you will. And it's rarely ever the case that that's, that's true. This is really helping to open up a pattern of continuous improvement and change. And to do that, you really need to install that in your corporate culture. You really need to look at the way you work and um, build into your values, into your core operating processes, into the things that you reward and, um, and celebrate uh, this uh, agenda for change and improvement and innovation and, and continuous process development. Second question, have you ever been in a situation where you just recognized that culturally the organization wasn't ready to innovate? And if so, what did you do? I would say you still have to kind of go back to the, 
to the John Cotter, um, you know, uh, formula for looking at this and, and really understanding what are the red flags that have been tripped in the situation that you're confronting and how likely will the organization be to acknowledge and make change in those areas. And I think the one for me that is the biggest red flag is if this doesn't have the direct active involvement of the CEO or the business leader that sits on top of the group that you're a part of, um, you know, the prospects of success are greatly diminished when that person isn't driving the change agenda and has that delegated to others in the organization. I think that's probably the one that you can't step away from. I have one, one last question for you, Susan. The last time you and I spoke, you were, I think the next day, going to be serving as a, an election judge for the first time. And so when you were when you were describing your transformation from going from an operator to, to board service and advisory roles, I didn't hear you adding on election judge as a, a part of your, your current repertoire. So, so curious kind of how that went. And if, uh, if someone's in San Francisco in November, if they're likely to see you at a polling place. They definitely will. Um, yeah, so I was a poll worker and it was right at the time of the general election. And so we, you know, there was all this discussion in the media um, that had been ginned up on the safety and security of our, um, you know, election and polling approach. And so I wanted to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. So if it required that you had, you know, qualified former business executives showing up and working at polling places count me in. So I, I did that. I served in my neighborhood and then we had a, a, um, a school board um, recall election actually this past month. And so I, I worked another day in the polls. We have another recall election in California coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and so there'll be a, a number of opportunities I'll have to, to to serve um, between now and the, the time of the next general election. And it was a great experience. It is hard. It is not an easy process um, that volunteers are, are required to support to ensure a free, open, and fair election. And it's been eye-opening and a great experience. So I would recommend it to anyone, if you have a volunteer day at work, um, to take it and use it to serve your community. It's a great way to meet neighbors um, and people really in, in San Francisco really have valued and appreciated the teams that show up to help ensure that we um, keep our democracy free, fair, and open. Oh, that's great. That's, uh, that makes me think that's something I should get out there and do at least once. Well, Susan, thank you so much for your perspective on a wide variety of topics. And uh, you know, knew this is going to be fantastic, both uh, for you personally, as well as, as the perspective you bring to it. So thanks so much for your time and joining us. This was fun. Thanks very much, Craig and Josh. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.